Now our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 11. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, to Romans chapter 11. We'll be finishing the 11th chapter, and we'll be looking at verses 25 to 36, which will be our scripture reading today. Now, Paul is developing the gospel of God, and he's about to go into the practical application of the gospel of God in chapter 12. He'll kick that off, Lord willing, we'll see it next Sunday. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, so in view of all of the doctrine that he's developed in those first 11 chapters, he's going to make the things practical and how he wants that practically applied. Before he gets into the practical part of the book, as he's dealing with the heavy doctrine, he says, but there's one thing that I really want you to zero in on before we make this gospel of grace practical, and that is the importance of Israel. Don't you ever, ever believe that you've replaced Israel, because you haven't. God has a special, unique program for Israel. That program will be worked out in the 1,000-year millennial kingdom in which Jesus Christ reigns on earth that's described in the book of Revelation. And Paul never wanted the church to forget about Israel, so he's basically discussing that point When we come to verse 25 of chapter 11, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, and so he's writing to the New Testament grace age believers, the brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. I don't know, quite honestly, how anybody can read that and say, well, it really doesn't mean Israel. You have to butcher the Bible to not see this. It is addressed to Israel. It's talking about Zion, which is located in Israel. It's talking about the descendants of Jacob, which are the Jewish people. There's no way you can dance around this if you handle this text honestly. Verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also now may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. There are those commentators that jump over these verses. In fact, I'll tell you this. Years ago, there were a group of our ladies in our first church who went to a Bible study fellowship thing, and they were going through Romans, they came to this text of scripture, and that's where our ladies decided to leave the movement, because they said they were jumping over this stuff. Because you can't dance around this. God has a unique plan for us. He has a unique plan for the nation Israel. It's clearly seen here. Paul wants us to know that. God wants us to know it. So may God add the blessing of the reading of the word of God and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? 
Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you that you are a merciful God, which you stress in this very text, who never goes back on your word. We thank you that in the outworking of the sovereign plan that you originally began with that nation Israel, you included us. When we consider that whole national program that you have with Israel, and the fact that you allowed us to be brought into the program as individuals, it's humbling. It's humbling. And Lord, we say thank you so much for that today. We pray that our relationship that we have with thee will please thee and be used of you to help others come to terms with truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can't help but read a text like we've read this morning without praying for Israel. We do have a burden and love for Israel, Lord, and we pray for them. And we know there's going to come a time when you once again will nationally go get her from places all over the world like you did from Egypt. But we also know that before that happens, that nation is going to go through horrible hurt and suffering. So we pray, Lord, that you would turn the bulbs of the hearts and minds of many Jewish people to understand the relationship that they can have with you through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us to reach some of that remnant. And Lord, we pray for our country. We are concerned for this country. We are especially concerned for the fact that it is waning. At least there's discussions of supporting Israel and not supporting Israel. We pray that our leaders will recognize the value of honoring Israel because as you've promised in your word, you will bless those that bless Israel, you will curse those that curse Israel, and you have certainly demonstrated in history that you're a God of truth. We want to pray today for your people and pray for those that are hurting and grieving. We want to especially pray for Bruce and Emily DeVries. We pray for them. We pray for your comforting grace and the loss of Barb. We know, Lord, she's with you and she's enjoying things the likes of which we dream about. But we pray that you would continue to minister to them and allow them to sense your nearness. We want to pray for the sick of this church, Lord. We have some that are very, very ill, and we pray that you would heal them. There are some who have the coronavirus that have come down with that. We pray that you would heal them of that and bring them back. We pray for those that are suffering from serious illnesses, diseases like cancer, Lord. They take the treatments, but then we have to look to you to do what they can't do, what the doctors can't do, what medicine can't do. We pray for your healing. And we pray for all of those that are going through these times of physical infirmity that they would sense your nearness and your comforting grace and mercy. Lord, we don't know how much longer we have on this earth, but we pray that with the time that you've given us, we'll continue to grow in grace and knowledge until you come get us. We pray that you would bless the people who love you and love your word. We pray you bless this church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to begin with a children's chorus give me oil in my lamp you remember that one give me oil in my lamp keep me burning i'm not a great singer but you know the song <laughs> so you come ready to bellow that or howl it whichever it may be and we're going to begin that to kick off the service tonight and it's going to start right at six don't dilly dally two adverbs that you don't use much dilly dally you come and we're going to begin the service that way with that children's chorus. There's a reason we're going to do that, of course, but you come and sing that. Years ago, I was in a service where the minister had the congregation sing, Jesus loves me, and then he stood up and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that's really all I need to know. And I have to admit it was touching. In fact, one person yelled out, amen, boys, that's the truth. Well, it isn't the truth. 
It's a great thing that Jesus loves me and the Bible tells us so. That is a wonderful theological truth, but that apparently is not all we need to know. Apparently we need to know a whole lot more than that. Otherwise, why would God go to the trouble to put 66 books in his word, which he expected his people to know and understand and rightly divide every single one of them? In fact, when Paul begins verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed. And he doesn't say, I don't want you to be uninformed about the fact that Jesus loves you. He says, no, 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 I've got a whole other theme that you need to think about that you need to know. And when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, he uses a particular Greek word from which we get our English word, agnostic. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of or have no knowledge of this important truth. I don't want God's people to be ignorant simpletons and have no knowledge when it comes to the dispensational program of God and the grace age. Now, why would God prompt Paul to tell Gentile brethren, and it's addressed to the brethren, believers in the church age, that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about the entire program of God that he has with Israel. He's really driving that theme home. Why would he tell the Gentiles, I don't want you to be uninformed about the program that God has with Israel, and I also don't want you to be uninformed about the program that God has with the Gentiles. Why does Paul go to all the trouble to lay out this deep doctrine in these chapters? I mean, why doesn't he just keep us in some type of ignorant bliss? Let me just suggest to you that unless you understand the program of God with the Gentiles, and unless you understand the program of God with national Israel, you'll never understand the Bible. There's the answer. You'll never understand God. You'll never understand the program of God. You'll be reading things in the Bible and you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you don't understand the difference between the Israel as a nation if you don't understand the program that God has with Gentiles and the program that God has with the church, you're going to be very confused when you open up the Bible. And the Bible will say a maze of things to you that for the most part won't make a whole lot of intelligent sense. So if someone says, it's just enough that, oh, Jesus loves me and I'm saved, the answer is, no, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. That's a wonderful truth, but that's not enough. And Paul didn't believe it. And it's very clear that God expects believers in his church to know his program that relates to the church. He wants his people to understand the program that relates to Gentiles. And he wants his people to understand the program that relates to Israel. Let's just define what Israel is. An Israelite is a person who's physically related to Abraham. A Gentile is a person who's not physically related to Abraham. And a Christian is one who's spiritually connected to Jesus Christ, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, who's part of the church. Now what Paul wants to drive home as he wraps this final doctrinal section up in the book of Romans is God does not want his people uninformed of his eternal program with the Jews, and he does not want them uninformed about the eternal program with the Gentiles, and knowledge of that sovereign program should prompt believers to acknowledge and praise God for his greatness. That's what that should do. Now, the knowledge of these powerful things about God should leave us standing in awe of God. That's what it did to Paul. I mean, Paul breaks out in that anthem that we saw when we read it, 
he breaks out into what we will say is a doxology at the end of this thing because he was contemplating the fact that here was God with a national program for Israel, puts a temporary blindness on the nation Israel, extends grace and mercy to individual Gentiles all over the world, calls them into his family, then he finishes that program up and then he goes back to finish the program with Israel and Paul just thought about that. That left him humbled. He's going, man, I can't even figure out the mind of God. Who can understand the depth level of what he's doing and what he's accomplishing? And that's the way it should leave us. It should leave us humbled that his sovereign program actually included you and me. Now, there are two phases to the program of God that God wants his people to understand. Phase number one, God is presently working out his program with the Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I don't know how you can get any clearer than that, quite honestly. When you read verse 25, there are three facts that just jump out of that verse. First of all, God does not want us to be uninformed or misinformed. You don't want to end up in that classification. When you go into eternity, you don't want God to say, well, you're one of the misinformed people. You're one of the uninformed people. He says, I gave you my word so you wouldn't be uninformed, so you wouldn't be misinformed. So that's there. Secondly, God does not want us arrogantly thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Because he says there that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I'm telling you, there is, as we brought out all through this section, a self-righteous pride to people, especially when it comes to religion. People are puffed up. When you get around people, and do this this week, just don't talk. Just listen. Listen to what they're talking about. Listen to how they're building themselves up. There's a pride. There's an arrogance. There's a lack of humility that exists within people. They don't humble themselves to truth. They don't humble themselves to the Lord. They want you to think they're more important than they are. And you have people say, well, this is pride week. God hates pride. Do you get that? There's not a thing in the Bible that manifests pride as a good quality to have. It's a pride that God hates. It's a pride that goes before destruction. And what Paul says is, I don't want my people who are Gentiles thinking arrogantly beyond what they're involved in here when it comes to God and Israel and them. The third thing that jumps out at us here is God does want us to realize that the hardening of Israel... And the program with Gentiles is temporary. There's a limited duration to this. I mean, that's what he's basically saying there. There's a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we're going to celebrate communion here this morning, which was given to us through Jesus Christ by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul when he said, I got this directly from Jesus Christ to give to the church, said, you are to celebrate this until the Lord returns. In other words, until we're raptured, or we go to be with the Lord, either one. The fact of the matter is, there is a temporary time limit where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's put a temporary time factor into the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. That's until the Lord comes back. Then we're not going to celebrate anymore because we're going to be with the Lord. Well, Paul says, I want you to understand there's a temporary blindness that's on Israel at the present time, and it's not going to be forever. 
And the point is, God's people shouldn't be ignorant about that. God says, you're the brethren of Christ. You should know about this. You should know that God has temporarily blinded Israel. They are in a temporary blindness, nationally speaking, until he's completed the program with the Gentiles. And once he's finished the program with the Gentiles, he's going back to Israel again. Now, a biblical mystery, he said, I don't want you uninformed about this mystery. It's not something that God doesn't know. A biblical mystery is a revelation that God chooses to reveal to us when he wants us to know it. In other words, God knows everything. And a mystery is something we don't know until God says, it's time for me to reveal this to you. So as Paul is wrapping up the doctrine section of the gospel of God, he says, it's very important from the mind of God for you to understand what's going on here. You need to understand that God is revealing to you that he has temporarily moved the sovereign program away from national Israel, and he's moved it to sinners who are Gentiles so he could save them. There's nothing here that we can boast about except in God. There's not a thing here that you and I could possibly be arrogant about other than be humbled by the fact that God put a temporary halt to the program of Israel so he could sovereignly save people like us. And there are two specific programs that are mentioned in verse 25, one that is not mentioned in verse 25, but there's the mention of the program that God has with Israel. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. There's a mention of God's program with the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, but there's no mention here of the program that God has with the church. He's going to develop that in the next chapters when he gets into the practical application of all this theology and doctrine that he's been giving to us. But it is plainly stated that there is a partial hardening of mind and heart that God has temporarily allowed to happen to the nation Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Until the full number of the Gentiles who are going to be saved has been saved. That's a good way to understand that. Right now, Gentiles are involved in running the world. Israel's not running the world. In fact, Israel doesn't even run the places that are in her land she should be running, like the temple site. You'd think that'd be a no-brainer. The nation Israel should be in charge of the temple site. Gentiles are running that. Right now, the program of God is not with national Israel. There's a temporary blindness on national Israel. This program is allowing Gentiles to right now kind of run things, but what God's doing in the midst of that is he's reaching out and he's calling people into his family who are Gentiles. That's the primary work of the program of God right now. And one of the key passages of scripture that testifies of that is Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas were testifying before the apostles in Jerusalem of the fact that they were out there preaching the gospel and Gentile people were responding, those who were not circumcised. So the apostles and the elders had a meeting. They call them into the meeting. And they're telling them, look, we're telling you God's now working with Gentiles. It's like the pendulum has swung from Israel to Gentiles. And so Peter stood up at that meeting and he said, well, I've seen Gentiles saved through my preaching too. I've seen the Holy Spirit save Gentiles through my preaching. And about that time, while this meeting's going on, James, who is the half-brother of the Lord, he stood up and said, Simeon 
has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this words of the prophets agree, just as is it written, after these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. What Simeon concluded at that critical meeting that took place there in Jerusalem is that right now, God's program is calling out people for his name. Once he's completed that, he's going to go back to that program with Israel, and by his sovereign plan and design, he's going to raise Israel up to be his great nation. Now, we need to understand this, because ladies and gentlemen, this allows us to think concretely about what God's will actually is now. And we can come to four important conclusions on the basis of the will of God right now. The present purpose of God is not to stamp out sin. That's not the present purpose of God. There will come a time when he'll do that. But that's not what he's doing right now. The fact of the matter is Jesus Christ is going to, at some point, stamp out all evil and stamp out all sin, but that is not the goal of God right now, and it shouldn't be our goal right now. These picket protest things I just don't see it as being biblical. We're going to stamp out. That's not our job. We're not going to be able to stamp out sin. That's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at this and God says, my purpose right now is to call out Gentiles for my name. My purpose is not right now to stamp out sin. Secondly, my present purpose is not to bring peace to the world. I mean, there are people that believe we're going to usher in peace. We're not going to usher in peace. In fact, the world's going to become more and more hostile. The present purpose of God is not to give us a specific land. You haven't been promised specific land. I haven't been promised specific land. Israel has. She has never had anywhere near the land boundaries that are promised in Scripture to Israel. Even during the days of David and Solomon, she never had even near the land totality that has been promised by God to her. So God is not going to give us specific land. We're looking to go to heaven. We're not looking for land. And the present purpose of God is not to make this world a better place to live. That's not what God's doing. Oh, he'll make this world a better place to live. He'll have to destroy it to do it. And that's what he promises he will do, and that's what he does do when you go through that book of Revelation. The purpose of God right now, for the most part, and Paul couldn't be any clearer on this point, the purpose of God, for the most part, is to call out a people from among Gentiles all over the world and save them, put them into his family, develop them for his glory, and when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, we'll be gone. We'll be gone. Now, we have responsibility to work out our own salvation. Once we are called into the family of God, in fact, Paul would challenge us Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You understand this. God has his hand on you. He's brought you into his family. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And there are basically three things that God is doing right now in calling people out. First of all, he calls them through salvation, through the hearing of the word of God. They hear the word of God. He sovereignly saves individuals. We've already seen that. He brought that out. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He does it through education. 
He instructs his people through the word of God so they may grow by it, grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells believers to do. And then through service. He gives people different gifts and abilities to minister in different ways as they apply the word of God. So it is clear from this particular text of scripture that Paul is laying out what the plan of God is. And what's also clear is most people have missed this. And when we were in Indiana, I'm against abortion. Understand that. I'm against abortion. You're killing a life that God is actually allowed to come into existence. So let me be clear on my position here before I relay this story. But a group from a Christian coalition came to my office and said, look, we're going to get a group together. We're going to go up and picket and protest that abortion clinic. Can we count on you? And I go, no. No, you can't. I said, I don't believe that's our responsibility. I don't believe our responsibility biblically is to go up and protest and picket anything, quite honestly. Our responsibility is to share the gospel with people so they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. So on the day of the picket and protest, I drove up there and I went into the abortion clinic. I went in there and I said, I'm the pastor of such and such a church. Across the street were all these people with pickets and signs and they're marching. I went in there and I said, I'd like to talk to who's ever in charge here. So they went and they brought the person out who's in charge of this abortion clinic. I said, look, I don't agree with what you're doing here, and you need to know that. In fact, what you're doing here is a serious sin against the Lord. But I said, here's what I'd like you to know. God's in the business of forgiving sinners, so here's what I would like you to do with these girls who come in here. If they come in here looking for an abortion, and you're seeing the sense that they're struggling with it, I'd like to give you my number that you can contact me. I'd like to give them an alternative of let that life live for the Lord. And I'd like you to understand that God can forgive all of you from what you've done. He's a gracious God, and his son on that cross died for you to forgive you of the sin. And this is a sin. I'm standing there talking to the person who is in charge of the abortion clinic, and the tears start rolling down her eyes. She said, you are the first person, the first minister, who's ever come in here and said there's a God who can forgive us. And for that... Thank you. No, I don't think it's our responsibility to be picketing and protesting all of this stuff because it doesn't square with what God says here in his word. The responsibility we have is to be sharing the grace of God and the truth of God with people so God can call out those Gentiles into his family. When he saves them into his family, we'll be gone. That's the goal. That's the goal we have, to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So the first phase that Paul develops here that he wants us to understand is the program that he has with the Gentiles. The second phase is the program he has with Israel. Verse 26 begins, and so all Israel will be saved. Paul begins verse 26 by saying, one day the entire nation of Israel is going to be in God's hands again. One day, all nation of Israel will be saved. When God has completed the program of the Gentiles, he's going to reboot that program with national Israel, and he's going to save her. Just like he did when he went and got her from Egypt, only this time, he's going to go get her from various parts of the world. He'll go get Jewish people from all over. Miraculously, he'll bring them together right into the land. 
And when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's referring to national Israel as a whole, not necessarily every Jew. Right now you have a few Jews who are saved. What he's basically saying is you need to understand this. There's coming a program in time when God is going to finish the program with the Gentiles and then he's going to go back to Israel and the whole bulk of the nation of Israel is going to be saved. And you can read about it. I don't have time to take you there in Ezekiel 20 verses 39 to 44. It's a beautiful description. God said, I'm going to do it for my namesake. I'm not doing it because you're faithful. I'm going to do it because my name's on the line here and that's why I'm going to save you as a nation because I promised that that's what I'm going to do. Paul says that's what God's going to do. The church needs to understand this. The church needs to understand where they fit into this. And there are five stated reasons in this text why God is going to finish a program with Israel and must finish a program with Israel. The first reason is because it's written in the scriptures. He says in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. God has to finish his program with Israel because that's what he said he's going to do in the written word. It's just that simple. God can't lie. He can't go back on his word. Paul quotes Isaiah 59 here to show that this matter of saving Israel is a prediction that was made in God's word in the Old Testament. Isaiah basically says the Redeemer will come. And so when Paul uses the word the Deliverer will come, he's talking about the one who can pay the full price and set them free and deliver them from all their sins. Now God just can't forget about what he's promised Israel. He promised her that I'll give you a land, I'll make you a nation, a kingdom in which all the nations of the world will honor and respect you. I'll give you a righteous king that will reign over you in total righteousness. He can't just say, ah, fooey on that. His own character demands that he fulfills what he promised to do. And keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, Israel's been a disaster. I mean, she has been a national disaster. He sent her his son. He sent her her Messiah. She killed him. But God says, I'm not done with her anyway, even though she did that. Why? Because I've written in the scriptures, I'm going to take that nation and make her a great nation that reflects my glory. And the Apostle Paul basically said the same thing concerning unfaithful individual Gentile believers. He said in 2 Timothy, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. See, God can't go back on his word. He's not fickle. People can go back on their word. They do all the time. I mean, people make promises, and then they go back on their word. That's why you have to have contracts. I mean, it used to be a handshake. I like when men could make a handshake deal, and everyone knew that the person was good for it. We're living in a time where you've got to have a contractual agreements, and people go back on their word there. They go back on their word in marriages and different pledges, various vows and commitments and memberships. God doesn't operate like that. When God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And one of the key reasons why he has to go back and give Israel everything that he promised he was going to give her is because that's what he said he was going to do. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. So when God said, when you believe in my son, I'll give you everlasting life, he has to do it. Not because we're great, there's nothing great in any one of us but because that's what he promised to do. So he said, I'm going to give you that blessing, Israel, because of my written word. Secondly, because of the covenant that I've made with you. Verse 27, this is my covenant with them. The word covenant means, God says, I've actually made a legal decree, legal document, 
that guarantees you have legal rights that include all those things I promised to you. I've entered into a legal contractual covenant agreement with the nation Israel that makes it impossible for me to break my covenant with you. In other words, I have promised this nation I'm going to do these wonderful things for her. And he says that's going to happen and those days are coming when that is going to happen. What's amazing is that when you look at the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the same God that entered into a national covenant with Israel says... I make an individual covenant with every person who believes in my son. I am in a covenant relationship with those who believe in my son because of the fact that they have trusted my son. So he has actually entered into a covenant relationship with us that guarantees us everlasting life. The third reason why God must fulfill his promises to Israel is because of the election of God. In verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice or God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. You see that? Paul says, even though right now when you look at Israel, you don't see a nation blessed of God. You need to understand this. For your sakes, for Gentiles' sake, God has allowed the program to come to you. But don't you for one second think that you're the end result of all of it. The fact of the matter is, it's only going to be with you for temporary time. In fact, God's the one who says Israel is the elect nation. And when he uses that term election, it scares people. It's a wonderful term. It means it saves people. Israel is a chosen nation of God. And no satanic power can change that reality. No person can change that reality. No government can change that reality. Israel is the elect nation of God. And Paul said in Romans chapter 9, that election in which God elected the nation Israel also has to do with individual Gentiles. God saved you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he tracked you down. He will fulfill all of the promises that he's made to you and take you all the way to heaven. Why? His election's on the line here. His fourth reason is because of the immutability of God. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God can't go back on his promise to Israel. Salvation's a gift. The calling of Israel was a gift. The land's a gift. And our salvation's a gift. He can't go back on it. When you give somebody a gift, you give it to someone, you don't take it back, it's a gift. And what God says is, I've given national Israel a wonderful gift that includes all of the things I promised that I'm going to do for her. And as individuals, he's done the same for us. He said, I can't go back on that. But then he drives home the fifth reason, and that is because of the mercy of God in verses 30 to 32. And I want you to notice the fourfold repetition of that word, Elias, which is used in verse 30, for just as you were once disobedient, to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Mercy. God says, You need to understand this. I am rich in mercy, and my mercy is one reason why I have to save Israel. It's not because she deserves it. My grace and mercy aren't given to people who deserve it. I don't save sinners because they deserve it. Someone has said grace takes care of the legal guilt and mercy takes care of the human misery. Pitiable people in pitiable conditions. 
And God extends his mercy to them. That's the way Israel was as a nation. He went and got her. She was miserable. She was enslaved to the Egyptians. She had no hope of getting out of that herself, so God said, I'll do it. And by the way, we do learn something here about why God permits disobedience. And don't flatter yourself, by the way, when you read that. When you read verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, now let's take that and say, you know what, that was me. That was me. That was you. Before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't try to be egotistical in this. Be honest and be truthful about this. We were disobedient to God. Disobedient to the word of God. That's why we invited the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our life. And so was the nation Israel. And we learn here one of the reasons why God permits sin. Why would God put up with disobedience? Why would God ever permit sin to even come into existence? He could just wipe it out, speak it out of existence. Why would God permit this? Because it shows a side to God that we would not know without it. And the thing that it shows about God that we wouldn't know without sin is his mercy and his grace. You could know a lot in this world about God without sin. You could know he's a powerful God just by looking at creation. You could certainly know that he is a God who has knowledge that's way above and beyond anything that we have the capability of knowing just by looking at creation. But you could never know about the grace and mercy of God until you see sin. And then when you see sin, you begin to grasp just a little bit about the grace and the mercy of God. God says, look, the salvation of Israel and the salvation of individual Gentiles is not about them being great. They're disobedient. It's about me displaying my mercy. And as Paul was rolling that through his mind, that this is the grace and mercy of God, he just explodes in this doxology. It's a doxology that features 13 things that obviously God wanted us to know that went through Paul's mind. You know, I think this is so critical. Proper theology will always lead to proper doxology. Don't forget that. Proper theology always leads to proper doxology. If you don't have proper doctrine, you can't worship God right. But Paul's doctrine was accurate here. And when Paul was thinking about this, my goodness, he's got a program with Israel, and then he cut it off, and he reaches out to individuals, and he's bringing them in to display his mercy and display his grace. He broke out in this anthem, and he says, God's program is deep. Oh, the depth of the riches. The depth of it. It's an interesting word there, abathos. It's a word that means it's deep. We're talking deeper than the ocean. We're talking depths of the sea stuff. He's going, this program of God, I'm rolling it through my mind. It's deep. And then he says it's rich. And he uses the word there for rich, Pluto, which is a particular word that would indicate it's at the extreme level of wealth and riches. Then he says, thirdly, it's rooted in God's deep and rich wisdom. It's rooted in God's deep and rich knowledge. You're talking here about a level that's way beyond what we can even grasp. He says what God's program does here, when you think about it, it's unsearchable. You can't research it. It's unfathomable. For those of you that like to hunt, those words there, unsearchable, unfathomable, would mean you can't track it. 
It's so deep you can't track it. It's so unfathomable that you can't even detect it. You and I can't even begin to grasp this, what it is, in the program of God. No one knows the mind of God, Paul says. And I think that's an important statement that he makes there. Because he says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Now, when he uses that word right there, mind of the Lord, noon, it's a word that means God has a mind, a thinking mind. And God's thinking mind has reason, understanding, thought, systematic organization. That's all in this concept of mind. And Paul says, who in the world can even begin to understand the mind of God? And then he said, who can give any counsel to God? Who's in a position to advise God of anything? I mean, you and I can't explain what's going on. Can you? Can you? I can't. I look at things that scratch my head. I say, man, I don't know. I'm glad God knows what he's doing because I don't have a clue. In other words, what he's saying is nobody is in a position to advise God. Nobody's going to be a consultant where God calls somebody in and says, hey, let's get some consulting agent in here to consult God on this. Then he said, no one has given first God anything. He says in that, who has known the mind of the Lord, who's become his counselor, or who has first given him that it might be paid back to him again. Understand that. You understand that about you. Understand that about you. God has given everything first to you and me, everyone. We throw a few bucks in the offering plate. Where do we get that from? Where do we get that? Where'd you get the ability to do what you do? Where'd you get the ability to have the skills and the abilities that you have that I don't have? Where'd you get that? God said, I first gave that to you. Paul's thinking about that. He's going, man, everything we have has first been given to us from God. And then, if that's not enough, he breaks down these three prepositions. And this is something to see. All things are from God, literally ek, literally out of God. God is saying here he's the source of everything. Then he says all things are through God. All things go through God first before they ever come to us. He's the filter of everything. And then he says all things are to God Things are actually involved in this world that are bringing exaltation to God. He's the goal of everything. As Paul thought about this whole program of God with the Jews and the Gentiles, and then he thought about God calling out individuals and displaying his grace and mercy, he says, to God be glory forever. Hey, let me ask you a question as we've gone through this. Do you see anything in these chapters here, or especially this text today, that glorifies man? anything that glorifies man. Do you see anything in this chapter here where you could stand up and say, I get to boast here? We have one person to boast in. That one person is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, you celebrate communion until he gets back. You keep your focus on him because he is the connection to the depth and riches of God that we have in a relationship with him. Let's pray. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ right now in this moment, you can settle that just by praying something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I admit that. I'm disobedient. I admit that. 
I place all my faith in Jesus Christ to save me. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Forgive us for times we've just been foolish and ignorant of your word, of your will. We've just lived life in so many ways in a simple way that doesn't grasp things. But I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for this group of people that they have a hunger and thirst for going through your word systematically. Lord, that right there speaks volumes here. And I pray that you bless each and every person for that. I pray that you bless our communion service, Lord. This is special. We have the privilege of doing this until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. So it is a great honor for us to do this. I pray you would see it as something that honors you today. In Jesus' name, amen.